Hey, good morning. How are you? Cindy, how are you? Okay. Have a good day. Good morning, BAC and Mark and Lexan. Thank you for coming. We'll start um, in a little bit. Um, so thank you for your patience. Good morning, Jamie. How are you today? Good afternoon for me, Katarina. <laughs> and um, I'm very well, thank you. Um, like I sent you some messages, I was reading the paper for this, and the more I was reading it, the more I was understanding, and the more wild I was becoming. How are you this morning? I'm good, thank you. Um, just having coffee and yeah, looking forward to this room. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I was looking at some of the um, the, the the terms, like I was telling you, like um, like the 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 dipole. Oh God, what's the term? Yeah, I wrote to you before. Um, looking that up actually helped me to understand a lot more about exactly how incredible this this paper actually is um so that was actually quite exciting um, um what's funny is um um talk Brian oh. let me say oh. hi real quick how are you today thank you for making it <laughs> yeah hi can you guys hear me yep perfect all right great hi, hi welcome thanks, doctor how are you oh good thanks yeah. I'm, I'm having my roof replaced today so it is total chaos at my house and uh, oh. so, but I, yeah. no, I don't think you can hear it though. I, I don't think it's getting picked up on the microphone. No, it's not. It's quite impressive. And we can hear you well, because sometimes some smart headphones have issues. Like, you, like they, but apparently Clubhouse fixed that. 
Like yeah. the Clubhouse, the app wouldn't work well with noise canceling headphones. But right. apparently it's better now because I can hear you well. So it's good. <laughs> good. Yep, coming through loud and clear. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Yeah, hey, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to find out what this is uh, all about. Absolutely. And uh, I was reading your paper as well, and I'm, I would have to say likewise to yourself because uh, the paper was really, really interesting. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. Um, I'm just a layman, so I'm going to be asking a couple of ones that might sound a little bit basic probably. Um, but the more I was reading about it and getting some terms down, um, the more I was understanding exactly what this is you're actually accomplishing. And it was quite incredible. But anyway, we'll get to that. <laughs> Have you been having a good day otherwise? Um, well, so uh, in addition to the roofers making a lot of noise and replacing the roof, they accidentally drove a roofing nail through our main gas line. So our whole oh, house no. filled up with gas. Yes. So uh, it's been an interesting morning running around showing, I had to shut off the main, you know, the gas main. Uh, we had to have them up in the attic, show them where the leak was. We got a guy coming out to fix it. It's like our whole house is just crawling with contractors right now. Oh, no. Yeah, it's okay. I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad nothing bad happened. <laughs> I'm sorry. To hear no, no, that. it's just. It just smelled bad. Uh, it, 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 yeah, we've we've we aired the house out, so it's fine now. Uh, but yeah, uh, <laughs> eh, you know, this is how things go when you replace your roof. I hope everything works out fine. It's good that somewhere <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to. Have that. Oh yeah, for sure. As the entire roof has been replaced, the whole thing. Yep. But yeah, that is going to be a, that's going to take a minute. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they got like eight guys running around the roof uh, working at insane pace for 13 hours a day. I've, I've never wow. seen people work so hard. Yeah, that's uh, that must be. Uh, my, my brother's a roofer, and um, oh, yeah? I had people tell yeah, I've had people telling them that when they've watched them on a roof, they'll they have to look away because watching someone <laughs> run up and down a roof is just terrifying to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, strength, endurance, and acrobatics uh, all at once. These guys. Uh, there's one right outside my window right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's um, you know, I'm from Portugal, but I grew up in Germany, and it used to be one of these. Um, one of like back in time it used to be one of these things that people would wander to the country and then find a place to stay and a job yeah uh, it used to be this weird tradition which is it's pretty was a pretty interesting life um that we don't have anymore it's kind of interesting <laughs> to think about all these different subcultures that that don't exist anymore but yeah it's it's must be a hard job, yeah. I've, I've um, only been to Portugal. I only been to Portugal uh, once, but but it was um, I went to Lisbon. It was very nice. 
Yeah, Lisbon is beautiful. Was it recently or? or... Um, I think it was in, about seven years ago. Okay, yeah, that's not too, too long. Yeah, it's, it's, Lisbon is really beautiful. They have a few also really great um, institutes from foundations for science and art. It's, um, yeah, I can't remember who organized the conference, but it was some big national organization. Um, and it was, uh, it was, it was at a, a, like a resort outside of Lisbon. Oh but, yeah. yeah. Like, that nice. was nice. Yeah, yeah. Lisbon around Lisbon is very beautiful, also. So, um, yeah, they are different by the either by the ocean or where the king used to have like um, a residence, like outside of Lisbon. There's also beautiful scenery. Yeah. Uh, it's probably uh, Champalimu or Gubenken that organized these are the two major like foundations that like pay for a lot of art and science in, in Portugal one used to be actually uh, an exile that was that only Portugal a person that was an exile that only Portugal took in and um, yeah the 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 money from that family is still supporting a lot of science and art in Portugal, and he died a long time ago. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's oil money mostly. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see for how long that still holds up. <laughs> anyway. well, it's, it's still a pretty lucrative industry, especially now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, but he kept it in... Uh, you know that in a way that it can be only used for this purpose for research science mm -hmm. art and education so yeah right on. so yeah i think we can slowly start and um and uh yeah i have um i'm just sorry to say right away i have a hard stop at at 10 so I guess Ryan, that's also good for you because you seem to be also very busy today. <laughs> oh yeah, actually, that works out really well because um, because in my agenda it went until ten thirty, but then we have a guy coming at ten to uh, that that wants to. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, good. I'm happy. I, I, it's, be, it's indeed it, it's advantageous for me also to leave at ten. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> Okay. I was kind of feeling bad, but then I thought, oh, maybe, you know, it's also good for you because it's in the morning. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I blocked an hour and a half for it, my agenda and everything, and I was all ready to go. And then um, yesterday, one of the contractors that's supposed, supposed to be uh, uh, coming, he, he said, oh, I can't come yesterday. I got to come tomorrow. And he wants to come exactly at 10. So works out well. Uh, we, so so um, I, I guess this is apropos, but um, I, I actually just moved to NC State. So I was at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands for um, 12 years. Um, oh. we, we, yeah. Uh, and, and then so we, we just moved out here like six months ago. Um, and so like when, when you what we've learned is that when you buy a house, it really takes like a year to move in because you buy the house and then you find out, well, it's a 20 year old roof. It should be replaced. And then uh you know I, the, the water heater needs to go and then like you know we have an electric car so we had to install a charger and then that involved upgrading the electrical and the it's just never ending so you just wind up for like 
the first year you, you, you own a home, it's just crawling with contractors, just doing stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, we, we, at some point we bought a house when we moved back to Europe in between, uh, we bought a house in Germany because, you know, my mom and my brothers and so on, they are living in Germany. It was the same thing. <laughs> it took forever for that house to be ready. And then we ended up, you know, um, renting it out, uh, because we then moved around again <laughs> for my right. Job. It's close to Dortmund and Düsseldorf. It's not too far from Düsseldorf. And I, the border to Belgium and Netherlands is also not too far. You know, in Europe, nothing is yeah, too far no. anyway. <laughs> I love Düsseldorf. Uh, I, I had some of the best mustard of my life in Düsseldorf. And, um, and I think, isn't Düsseldorf also, it's, it's not the Kolsch. It's the, what's the beer there? Um, Oh shoot! I forgot it now. Um, yeah, Cologne is right next to it. Right yeah, Cologne, next. Yeah, that's where the Kolsch is. Yeah, but the yeah, Düsseldorf the, has what is it called? No, uh, I, I have to ask my husband because he's a German, it's, and it's, I can't okay. get into beer. Well, it's uh, one of the only. If you like beer, if you're into beer, uh, Düsseldorf, like every region, as you know, every region of Germany has their own beer. And uh, a long time ago, loggers took over all of uh, Germany and displaced ales, and the ales all wound up in the UK. But Dusseldorf is the one region of Germany that actually their their local beer is an ale. It's it's one of the, um, it, I think it's the only one in Germany. <laughs> so Frank is here. Frank, I'm trying to invite you, but it's not working because he's German and he's sure no. I know the local beer of the city I grew up in, Bochum. I grew up in the city next door, which was Fiegerpilz. But, Frank, what's the name? It, it, it's beer. They drink beer. And in Köln, they drink Kölsch. Right. They don't like each yes. other. Yes. And it's so funny because they are right next to each other and they are very similar traditions about carnival. I don't know if you ever went to Europe during carnival season and the Rhine area, it's uh, the whole, the whole week, everything closes down and, and there's a big party and in both cities and it's very divided. Who likes to go to which city for a carnival? If you like Düsseldorf or Köln, it's very different. <laughs> so, but, but maybe, Good maybe there are a couple of, of beers in Düsseldorf, so maybe you think of a specific brand, which could be Uriger, that is a very specific brand there, or something else. But anyway. Well, the, the, all, <laughs> the, the alt beer, yeah. But the alt beer style is one of the few German beers that's brewed with top fermenting ale yeast. So it's, it's, it sets it apart from all the other... Like, I, so when I moved to the Netherlands, I didn't like the beer there. So despite being right next door to Germany, the Netherlands has terrible bread and terrible beer. I don't know why. Um, and so I, I, when I lived in the Netherlands, I brewed extensively while I was there so I could make all the beers I liked. Um, and then I travel around Europe, like sampling all the beers to, 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 to learn the, uh, the styles. And, and the alt beer was one of my favorites. Yeah, it's true that Netherlands, so the food laws, the laws around food are way less strict in the Netherlands than in Germany. It could be very German prone. I'm biased. But um, so it's more allowed to put more stuff into uh, things like more ingredients that are kind of not natural and stuff. Mm. Because well, I, the I, I, 
and that's why it makes the quality kind of not so good um right but there's food that is not allowed it's in water not beer yeah. <laughs> yeah you can only buy it in the netherlands because the foods you know um rules don't allow it in germany it used to be that way at least um in germany you can only use as an ingredient what is officially allowed so yeah if you make a bread there is ingredients that are officially allowed and you cannot add anything else and then there's the other way around the world way well it, it, it's not even just the quality because like uh, Krolsch is a very good dutch beer that's still brewed in the old tradition unlike heineken which they use adjuncts and stuff for it's like if you go to a a, a pub in, in the this is changing now because the microbrew thing has really taken off there but like 10 years ago, if you went into a pub in the Netherlands, they would have two beers, beer and special beer. <laughs> That's it. And then, you know, where I was, I was two hours from the German border. So I could drive, or less than that, I could drive for two hours and I could walk into a German pub where, you know, you had like all kinds of good beer. And this is, anyway, like, sorry, I don't want to talk about beer the whole time. It's, it's just, I like beer. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> Well, it, it's a fun discussion. We can have a whole nother event about beer. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, welcome everyone to Science Society. And of course, a special um, welcome to Ryan. Um, and uh, let me introduce you a little bit to the audience. So, I'm not sure if I'm saying your name right, your last name, Ryan Kiechi? That's, that's actually pretty close. It's, it's Kiechi, yeah. Okay, okay, perfect. Um, he's an associate professor at uh, North Carolina uh, University, and he did his bachelor in chemistry at the University of Oregon and his PhD in chemistry at the University of California, Los Angeles. And um, he is interested in his research in um, organic materials chemistry, he uh, in the design, synthesis, and implementation of organic macromolecules um, that mitigate the generation and flow of electricity in thin films and interfaces, uh, which is, I think, a really interesting, um, yeah, interesting um, area of research to be in, especially organic photovoltaics and thermal electrics, um, unconventional nanofabrication, and so on. So yeah, we are very excited to having you here. And um, usually we ask like um, a question beforehand, uh, how you basically came to, to become a scientist. Was there something in your life or maybe a teacher or something that sparked your interest in science in general and in your field also. If you have something to share, that would be really interesting. Before you do so, Ryan, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to make you aware that there's some background noise in your microphone. And when Katarina spoke, these background noises kind of um, muted Katarina. So um, probably when you're done speaking, you you have to uh, close your microphone down. So sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I don't, 
So as I was mentioning earlier, uh, they're redoing my roof right now. So I'm surrounded and people banging on the roof and the walls. So that's probably what you're picking up. Uh, so sorry about that. Um, I'll mute myself when I'm not talking. Um, uh, well, hey, thanks for the introduction. And um, I think that's actually a very interesting question. And um, one of the big differences, uh, as I was mentioning before, I was in the Netherlands for 12 years and I just came to NC State uh, in January of this year. And one of the big differences between the Netherlands and the US is that here we get to do a lot more outreach activities. Um, this is, you know, a, a manifestation of sort of the more unequal society because in the Netherlands um, there isn't a whole lot of outreach because, you know, they have a robust um, public education system and everything. So, but I do, uh, I like to take advantage of the opportunity. And the thing that I've kind of landed on is actually doing outreach in um, underserved rural communities. And the reason for that is because um, uh, the way that I got into science uh, really, it, it more or less, uh, it was completely random, right? So um, my, my family uh, immigrated to the United States, um, you know, my, my grandparents' generation. They came from Hawaii, they came from Italy, and they came from Croatia. And they came to all the California and there they worked in orchards and printing presses and things. So very blue collar um, background. And nobody in my family uh, really went to college. I mean, I have an aunt and uncle who, who went to college, but they're the only two who finished. Um, and so when I was growing up, we had no concept of people who go to college, people who go to universities. I didn't know scientists and we lived very rural. So we were really out in the middle of the forest. Um, you know, most of the people from, from my high school uh, stuck around the area. A lot of them went into the military and then came back after they served in Iraq um, and, and such. And so there wasn't a lot of emphasis on this. It's not, it, you know, the, the, my observation in the Netherlands is that the schools do a really good job of exposing the children to all different areas and then sort of pushing them into these alpha, beta or gamma tracks. But, you know, we really don't have that in the United States. So um, the story that I always like to tell about how I got into science, uh, which I'll tell you now, um, I think sort of sort of highlights that. So um, when I was pretty young, so, um, you know, maybe five or six years old, um, my, my parents had been divorced. And so I was living with my mom and, uh, we were living in this duplex in Redwood city, California. And, um, I, I, uh, my mom, my mom at the time was, um, working, she was a waitress, uh, and, and, uh, during the day and during the night she was, she was putting herself through school. So she was going to the local community college. And she was studying nursing. And so she would come home, um, you know, late at night, whatever, after her classes. And then um, uh, the next day she would, she would do some studying, say, in the morning. And because it was just the two of us, I would help her out. So she had this big book of um, anatomy. And I loved that book. And I, and I read this book. And, and so, um, uh, you know, this little kid, I had really no idea what was going on. And I was, like, remembering all these names of body parts and things. And... So apparently around the neighborhood, people kind of said, hey, you know, there's that kid who, you know, can name like all the bones in the hand or something. That's kind of weird. Um, and so one day I was uh, out in the front yard. I was playing around and the um, neighbor dropped by and he handed me a brown paper bag and he said, hey, um, I hear it's your birthday uh, pretty soon. So, you know, I, I got you a little something I thought you might like, you know, to have. Now, this is the 1980s. So when a stranger hands you a brown paper bag, you say, oh, thanks, mister. You know, I don't, I don't think that would happen today. Um, so I open up the bag and I pull out a microscope. 
And uh, I said, wow, <laughs> this is great. It's a microscope. And he says, you know, um, you seem like a curious kid. I, th I thought maybe you'd like this, this present, uh, you know, this microscope. He said, I just asked one thing. He says, uh, there's like a piece of electrical tape on the side of the microscope. Never take that off. That's all I ask you. Just don't take it off. Leave that, that, that label there. And I said, all right, fine. So I take this microscope. I show it to my mom. She says, you know what? Um, I can get some microscope slides and cover slips from the, uh, um, from the college. So she does that. And so then I spent, um, in point of fact, my birthday is the day after Christmas, but we celebrated it in June, my, my half birthday for obvious reasons when I was a kid. So this was June. I spent the rest of the summer going around the yard, looking at absolutely everything in the microscope, right? So it, it, it took this little tiny yard in our duplex and it turned it into this sort of, it's this fascinating world where you, you could observe, you could look at tiny bugs. Um, you know, I would, I would, I would uh, endlessly like prick my finger and try to look at my own blood. I would, I would uh, look at hair follicles. I would look at, um, you know, little insect parts I would find around, the dirt, absolutely everything, uh, the texture on, on grass. Um, and, and this really, at a very young age, this, this exposure to this microscope was really what jump-started my interest in the natural world and just how complex it is. Um, and in retrospect, I think that that um, really oriented me towards, towards science at, at, a, at a young age, although I didn't realize at the time. Now, um, many years later, we moved um, off into, you know, up, up into Oregon, where, where we were living out in the forest. And um, I'm sitting in my room, and I'm looking at this microscope, and it's sitting up on my dresser. And that piece of tape is still there, right? And this is like 10 years later. And I said, you know, these guys are long gone. We've left California. What, you know, come on. I, I, I can take this thing up. So I, I, I got the microscope, and I ripped the tape off of the side of it. And scratched into the side of it, it said Woodside High School, number 46. Um, and so I didn't know what to make of this. And so I asked my mom. And uh, what I figured out was that our next door neighbors were actually heroin addicts. And um, of all things, they were Dutch immigrants. And they would go around and rob like local high schools and, and stuff. And then they would sell the stuff they got out of there for money to buy heroin. Um, and, and I just thought it was a kind of a poignant and interesting thing that... Here's this guy robbing a high school, stealing stuff from the science lab that he's going to go sell to buy, you know, money for heroin. And he thinks, you know, that neighbor kid, I bet you he'd like this microscope and, and thinks to, to, to give it to me as a birthday present. And, um, you know, whether or not I would have wound up as a scientist had that not happened, I don't know. Um, but, you know, as I said, I think it really um, op it opened me up to this world uh, just, just very, very naturally. Um, uh, this, this microscope, which I hung on to for a very long time. In fact, I don't know actually what happened to it. Um, how I wound up in chemistry, I'm sorry, this is a long answer, but um, how I wound up in chemistry is that uh, when I went to, so I, I was also a terrible student um, and uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I graduated high school. All my friends went up to the University of Oregon. And so um, I just followed them up there. And so I show up in college and um, the thing I was the most interested in at the time was um, jazz. Um, and so I, I decided I was going to, I was going to, I was going to jazz studies in college. That's, that's what I was going to major in. Um, and then I, I looked around and I realized that that's probably not like a great, uh, um, it's, it, it's not probably not a great career option for me because it would take the thing that I loved and it would turn it into a career, which, would, which I think would be bad, right? I'd, I'd rather keep music as sort of something fun. Um, and so I like bounced around a little bit between different majors. Um, I, I tried computer science for a while because I was into computers. Um, and I wound up in psychology because I was really interested in um, neurophysiology and um, drug interactions. 
And I was taking a neurophysiology course and they were talking about all the chemical interactions. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Um, I should go take a, a chemistry course. And so I went and I, I took general chemistry over the summer uh, where they packed like general chemistry and general chemistry laboratory into one summer. And I just had fantastic teachers. They came up from uh, OIT, which is a uh, Oregon Institute of Technology. It's out in Klamath Falls. And one came up with, uh, from Southern Oregon University. And they'd come to the University of Oregon and teach these courses in the summer. And they're just really good, dedicated teachers. And they got me really interested in chemistry. And so I switched my major on the spot um, from um, psychology to biochemistry. And so I actually wound up finishing a degree in biochemistry. But while I was uh, an undergraduate, I was invited to do research into um, one of the laboratories and it just so happened that they worked on organic materials and so um and i just ended up really really liking that research so it was in my undergraduate that i actually found the topic of research that i'm still working on uh, today and that, that's that's what i follow that's an amazing Again. stuff it's so cool. oh i'm sorry you were not finished i'm so sorry. no no i was just muting my microphone sorry uh, okay it's such an amazing story and it's so interesting um that You know, most people, most speakers um, are driven by curiosity and that kind of makes me really, yeah, makes me kind of happy <laughs> uh, that, you know, most scientists we, we, we have here, including you, are really driven by curiosity. And um, I, I myself was not a wonderful student in school just later on in college because I finally found what I was passionate about. and. Um, and I would have taken off immediately that thing that he said, don't touch it. I was a horrible kid. Whenever somebody said, don't do this, I immediately went ahead and said, why shouldn't I do this? Let me figure out why. So I'm glad you were a much better kid than I was. So, um, with that, um, yeah, please go ahead uh, with um, talking about, um, you know, this research that we posted here. The link is available, the paper for everyone. Uh, please let me know if you have issues in the back channel in the chat um, accessing the paper. And yeah, the stage is yours, Ryan. Thank you so much. Yeah, and it's an open access publication, so everybody should be able to um, download it directly if you want. Um, so um, the, I guess uh, um, the basis of this paper is um this so this is a two author paper you know this and so the other person in this paper his name is uh, shinkai and he was an absolutely fabulous phd student and um he's he, he actually he went on to do a, a postdoc at oxford and now he's um in henning steeringhouse's group in um, in cambridge and uh, and so he and i uh wrote this paper while i was in transition to to uh nc state um, but this is all based on a discovery that he made when he was uh, a PhD student. And so what I was working on before was um, self-assembled monolayers of alkane thiols and aromatic thiols conjugated mo like molecular wires. And uh, what we do is we grow self-assembled monolayers out of these, and then we would put this liquid metal top contact on top of them. And we would measure the tunneling charge transport properties and um, see how we could manipulate that synthetically. Now the issue with thiols and SAMs of thiols is that they're not stable. So they're very prone to photooxidation. They um, desorb electrochemically very easily. And if you grow a, a SAM out of an alkane uh, thiol, which is the most robust kind of SAM, uh, it maybe will survive for a day or so. And after that, you, you, you go to measure its charge transfer properties and it's all shorts. 
So what Shinkai figured out was that if you have fullerenes, uh, fullerene derivatives, now fullerenes are known to make very strong non-covalent interactions with uh, certain metals like copper and gold. And uh, they actually bind with a stronger affinity than uh, thiols, which ostensibly make covalent bonds to gold. And what Shinkai figured out is that if you have a functional group on your fullerene, so these, we were using protoaddicts, and these are fullerenes that have um, triethylene glycol tails on them. So these, these polar tails with, with uh, high dipole moments on them. Uh, he figured out that the fullerenes, because they arrange in sort of a closed pack array on gold surfaces, then would express these change on the surfaces at exactly, at the exact spacing of the diameter of, uh, of, of a fullerene. And uh, what that then allowed is for us to perform a second self-assembly step where when you put something on top of that that also has a complementary triethylene glycol tail, they will interact strongly. And something we still haven't figured out is that when they interact, they also serve as really efficient tunneling media. So that means that when we build these bilayers that have fullerenes and then triethylene glycols and then molecules on top, the, the resulting junctions express only the properties of the molecules on top. Uh, we get very high rates of tunneling. We see switching effects. We see uh, length dependence. We see all the things that we expect to see out of these. But because we've gotten rid of the thiols and the gold surface is passivated with fullerenes, uh, these junctions are stable for months in air, just sitting out on the, on the bench top. I think this is an important feature because if we ever want to build real functional devices uh, using self-assembled monolayers, we can't use things that either need rigorous encapsulation or that just, you know, die easily in air. So um, so we, we published a little bit of stuff on that. And then we, we're also making biophotovoltaic devices. So we're using Photosystem 1 to make photovoltaic devices. And in doing so, we noticed that if we functionalize a surface just right, we can get Photosystem 1 to organize itself on a surface. And, and if it organizes so that it's pointed uh, with the electron transport chain in one direction, it rectifies current. And if it, you, you flip it upside down and the electron transport chain is pointed in the other direction, it rectifies current with opposite polarity. And what we learned from this was that it has nothing to do with the electron transport chain, and it's actually the alpha helices in the photosystem one complex that creates uh, an electric field. And that electric field then either uh, works with or against the applied bias, and that's where you get this, this rectification effect. And that's really interesting because it means that the rectification is, is pure uh, non-resonant tunneling. Um, and that's a big deal because photosystem one is a huge complex. And so we're able to now have these very large complexes that are very stable, sitting on these very stable surfaces that will mitigate tunneling electrons in a way that we can then um, you know, create diodes. Um, now what Shinkai figured out is that if you change the polarity to an intermediate surface, you can scramble the orientation of the photosystem one. And so it, since you have an, a statistical mixture of up and down, it doesn't rectify in either direction. So now it just functions like a resistor. So what this means is that we can take a gold surface we can then pattern that with uh, fullerenes that express these chains that are either polar or sort of, you know, mixed polar, nonpolar. And wherever you have the polar chains, the, then when you, when you immerse this in a solution of photosystem one, the photosystem one will orient on those regions so that it makes a diode, so that it rectifies current. And on all the areas we have these sort of less polar chains, it'll randomize. And so there, they're gonna function like a diode. And the key here, and the reason I say that, that using these big complexes is important is because they're giant protein complexes, they're mechanically very robust. And so what that meant 
is that it was very easy for us to apply top electrodes just by a direct printing process. And so that then opens up the possibility of just drawing circuits on top of these things. And so what we did in this paper is just as a proof of concept, we showed that if you pattern gold surfaces so that you have diodes and resistors in the right spots, you can then paint liquid metal contacts on top that will bridge them in a way that you can make logic circuits. Um, I think this is important because if you, you know, the computers that we're all talking on right now, they use field effect transistors, MOSFETs, uh, to, to, to gate current. Um, but before MOSFETs took over the world, uh, diode-based logic was really common. And so you can build digital logic circuits using diodes just fine. Uh, you don't need to use MOSFETs. Um, and so that's what we were trying to show in that paper, is that you can use these, these self-assembled uh, systems of Photosystem 1 in these very easy to fabricate, air-stable, very robust devices where you can link enough diodes and resistors together to make, uh, in our case, a clock oscillator. So if you apply, uh, uh, you know, when, when you turn the current on and off, it's, um, it turns the logic circuit on and off so that it can um, switch on and off the input of a clock oscillator. Um, and then I think what's interesting also is that because this operates in the tunneling regime, it's very fast. And so we were able to show that it'll switch up to 3.3 kilohertz. And the only reason we stopped there is because that was the upper limit of the instrument that we had. Um, so I think that this paper is a proof of concept that if you solve the very difficult problems of miniaturizing this stuff, you could conceivably be build uh, logic circuits that utilize these self-assembled photosystem one complexes, um, which I think uh, is a potential route towards viable molecular electronics, which is something that the community of people who study molecular electronics has been interested in for decades, is trying to make um, uh, platforms that are stable enough that we could plausibly make devices out of them. And um, what we'd like to look at in the future here is if we can get additional functionality out of these, maybe to do, um, you, you know, to access some of the more modern functionality that people want, like memristive behavior um, and such for like neuromorphic computing or data storage, uh, that sort of stuff. But we think that this platform, uh, we could build on it and, and that we can, um, because it's so robust, maybe extand it into other, um, other type of device architectures. Yeah, that's, that's a really amazing research. And um, um, yeah, it's really impressive, um, you know, to learn more about it. Um, and um, that's it. Um, please uh, flash your microphones when you have a question, uh, raise your hand. Um, everyone um so uh i you know i would like to encourage participation to interact with ryan here so um yeah please feel encouraged to to ask questions uh, make comments and um yeah um but nobody oh part you joined the you joined the room welcome do, do you have a question Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Katrina, for uh, getting me on stage. And, and thank you. Thank everybody here uh, for doing this room on this uh, really fantastic paper. I'm just going through the paper. I was just going through the paper as uh, Dr. Ryan was speaking uh, about it and also his own uh, personal uh, journey in science. Thank you for doing this. And uh, this is fascinating because I'm one, so I'm a microbiologist by training. Uh, I work in the uh, in the confluence uh, or areas of uh, 
microbiology, genomics, molecular evolution, and origins of life. So I'm really curious to know if, uh, how does your work uh, relate to, um, you know, piezoelectric devices, uh, probably you mentioned it, I missed it, or how, how can understanding protein self-assembly can be useful in understanding how protein domains and motifs may have evolved from an origins of life perspective? I know it's a very loaded question, but it, those thoughts immediately came to me. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. It's hard for me to draw a direct connection, um, you know, because we're, we're using these things ex vivo in these um, uh, very unusual environments for them. Um, but, you know, when dealing with, with, with proteins from, from our end, so since we're trying to extract functionality out of them, what I do think is interesting is, um, you know, for example, with photosystem one, the reason that it assembles the way that it assembles is because it is a membrane protein and membrane proteins have all evolved to have nonpolar peripheries so they can sit into a lipid bilayer and then polar faces because those are the ones that are interfacing, you know, uh, with the extracellular uh, environments and, and, and the cytoplasm on the inside um, or, or whatever, you know, a, a, a membrane they're crossing. Um, and, and that's actually what imparts the, the self-assembly the, the self properties of these. And um, what I wonder, because as I was maybe poorly explaining, I don't know, but I was try, trying to say uh, before, is, is one of the things I think is really cool about proteins is that nature produces them. So we have kind of an in, infinite supply of them and a huge structural uh, variety. And what I thought was interesting about photosystem one is the way that it rectifies current is because of the structural proteins. It has nothing at all to do with the electron transport chain, uh, in, uh, you know, running down the reaction center. Um, and so maybe I would say that it's actually the reverse, which is that I should talk to evolutionary people who study evolutionary biology and who know about these things to find proteins that assemble in really interesting ways in nature. And then seeing if we can pull those out uh, and put them into devices and, and, and utilize that self-assembly uh, to affect other properties, right? So you mentioned like piezoelectrics. There's absolutely no reason that you couldn't use uh, find some protein out there, that, you know, like maybe one of those, what are the, I forget they're called the force sensors in, in your skin, you know, that, that deform um, or, or something um, that, that uh, you know, there's no reason that we couldn't find some protein out there and put it in these junctions that they would then behave as piezoelectrics, um, but then have all the, the uh, useful properties of proteins, like the self-assembly and, and, and such. So, so yeah, so I guess maybe I turn that around and I would say that, that, that uh, your expertise would maybe be more useful to me than my expertise would be for you. <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much, Ryan. So I just wanted to add a couple of points. So from an evolutionary perspective, currently uh, the current sc schools of hypothesis regarding the origins of protein folds and domains uh, suggest that uh, the OB fold and the SH3 domains, which uh, are very important for some of the oldest, uh, some of the proteins known to be the oldest, among, which are part of the ribosome. The ribosome is a macromolecular ribonucleoprotein complex that makes, uh, that's responsible for the, for the peptide bond formation. So in the central dogma of life, you have the DNA, which is the repository of uh, information. So the, the flow of information comes from the DNA. DNA gets transcribed to RNA. RNA gets translated to the protein. 
So the molecule that does the translation is the ribosome. The ribosome contains both RNA, 70% RNA, um, and 30% proteins, at least in the bacterial ribosome. And uh, the oldest proteins in the ribosome are near the are the closest to the peptidyl transferase center, which does the actual catalysis of the peptide bond formation, uh, resulting in the formation of the peptides, right? And the oldest proteins as of now are thought to be L2, L3, L4. These are universal proteins and also thought to be the oldest. And uh, at least L2 definitely, which is thought to be amongst these three, L2 is hypothesized to be the oldest based on universal conservation as well as conservation levels as well as the universality. And L2 is comprised of two domains, two uh, major components, SH3, SH3 domain and the OB fold. So maybe it will be interesting to see how um, a protein which contains exclusively of SH3 domains or OB folds would behave vis-a-vis -vis proteins that have domains which evolve much later. That might tell us something about, uh, that might address some of the questions we both seem to be asking. Am I, am I even making sense, Ryan, Dr. Ryan? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I so yeah the ribosome is is definitely older than um, uh, than the photosystem one, but I do know that the, uh, the the photosystem one and photosystem two are also some of the most conserved proteins across uh, basically all photosynthetic organisms. Um, and I, I don't know that this is directly relevant, but just apropos, what we're doing now is we're we're comparing. Photosystem one derived from plants to photosystem one derived from thermophilic bacteria, and um, these are very preliminary results. You know, so so we haven't like followed up on this yet, but we're we're working on it. Something that I thought was interesting in that is that the reason that you use the um, photosystem one from thermophilic cyanobacteria is because the you know they denature at higher temperatures, right? They're just more robust, and so. Um, what that's supposed to tell us is that if we want to make devices out of proteins, we should use these proteins that are optimized for thermal stability in nature. What we found out is that the spinach-derived photosystem one that we're currently measuring is as, if not more, stable in devices, in, in the device context, than the thermophilic bacteria. Um, and so, um, again, I, I, I have to think I have to think harder on how to connect these these ideas like that you were talking about with these uh, very old proteins in the ribosome. Um, but what I thought was interesting about that is that um, is that nature produces different kinds of photosystem one where you know the reaction center is identical in both of them. All that's changed is some of the structural proteins in the periphery, and that nature optimizes. A, uh, a, a bacteria, a, you know, the, the cyanobacteria photosystem one to operate in higher temperatures or whatever, right? And then so human thinks, okay, well, if, it, if, if nature has made this thing more stable, it must be more stable in a device context. But I, what we're finding out is that when you take proteins out of their natural environment and you put them into a totally different context, um, maybe these things don't behave the way that they should, right? So we find that the quote unquote, less stable photosystem one is as if not more stable in device context than the, the one derived from thermophilic bacteria one. And two, that these proteins that we thought would rectify current or switch or do something interesting because of the electron transport chain that's inside them actually um, gives completely different uh, properties in, in, these, in these devices, right? So what turns out to be relevant is actually just the alpha helices. Um, 
and so well that's, that's i guess that's why i was saying that maybe uh the the uh, the, the, the situation is reversed where it would be more useful for me to talk to you about interesting structures than the other way around. Um, because, you know, as I say, when you take these things out of their natural environment and you put them into a device context, suddenly they exhibit wildly different functions that are derived from, from how they evolved in nature, but like have nothing to do with that, right? Because nature obviously didn't optimize photosystem one to sit on a fullerene functionalized gold surface. Um, now with things like the, uh, with the, with the ribosome, I don't I don't know enough about it to know how easy it is to obtain. But um, in terms of the stuff that we work with, easy to obtain is basically the criterion that we go after. So we use bovine serum albumin because you can just order buckets of that. We use Photosystem One because it's easy to derive from spinach leaves, and because we had a colleague who was uh, derived, you know, was isolating it from uh, cyanobacteria. Um, but basically, we're interested in looking at effectively any protein, and it doesn't even have to be a protein. I mean, you know, some of these, uh, uh, like the RNA complex that you're, or the RNA part of the ribosome you're talking about might be interesting. But we're, we're basically interested in looking at anything that's easy for us to get uh, our hands on because we um, don't have the wherewithal to go isolate these things ourselves. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. Uh, the more... um, thank you so much for the question. We only have around 15 minutes left, um, maybe a little bit more. So I wanted to check, um, who else has questions? Please flash your microphone. Yeah, sorry. So let me just say real quick, if anybody wants to follow up by email, uh, you can, my email, you can find it very easily. So I'm, I'm happy to discuss more um, uh, any of this stuff uh, afterwards. Definitely, definitely, Dr. Ryan, I'll email you. Thank you, Katrina, for the opportunity. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, thank you. And thank you, Ryan, for offering. That's very uh, nice of you. Uh, good, you have a question, and then Jamie has a question, and then we go from there. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, Dr. Rea, like my uh, question to you is, as you already explained uh, about the utility of uh, uh, this uh, self-assembled logic circuit, uh, which is derived from protein. So, I want to understand in a simple manner, like when we read about a diode, we talk about doping, you know how uh, from uh, intrinsic material we are going to create that kind of uh, uh, charge and then uh, when it is induced from external source we get the conduction so how how are you assuring uh, that which protein you will be using and how it will be equivalent to a diode yeah so so I, um, let me i'll give just a little bit of background so when you um uh, so, so, so the, you mentioned doping and you mentioned diodes uh, and, and, and so those currently are made almost exclusively from silicon and related uh, um, inorganic uh, elements. And so there you have a, a crystalline uh, uh, extended solid, right? Like germanium or silicon or whatever. And uh, there you dope them by replacing some of the atoms in the lattice with atoms that have more or fewer <clears throat> uh, electrons, right? So you end up with phosphorus, you peed up with boron, for example. Uh, and this actually creates uh, effectively defects in the, 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 the crystal, but it also creates uh, a, a, a basically additional or, or, or again, fewer electrons that create either um, electrons or holes. And because of the high dielectric uh, environment and the crystalline structure and phonon coupling and all this other funny stuff, 
these charges become very mobile and they move around. And so they diffuse uh, uh, in, the, in the bulk material very easily. So to make a diode, um, traditionally what you do is you fuse P-type and N-type silicon together. And then at that interface, you create what's called a PN junction. This isn't the only type of diode, there's Shockley diodes and other things, but this is the one that's used like in computers. And there what happens is the charges diffuse into each other because the holes are attracted to the electrons and vice versa. But as they diffuse inside the device, they create an electric field. And so you reach this um, sort of equilibrium where the electric field becomes strong enough that it prevents the further diffusion of charges. And so now you have this space charge regime between the P and the N type material. And when you apply an electric field, a bias on the outside, you either compress that region or you expand that region. Um, and when you compress it, you increase the conductivity because you're, you're, comp you're, you're compressing the depletion uh, region. So, so you're allowing current to flow. So that's how um, those diodes work. Those are very good diodes. They pass effectively no current at, at, at one bias and you know, they, they have a vertical ID curve on the other side. Um, the proteins that we're using operate on a really similar principle, except that rather than having a depletion region and mobile carriers moving around, what we have is just the electric field. Uh, and that's created by the uh, collective dipole moments of the alpha helices that are in the periphery of the photosystem one complex. So they're structural proteins that hold it up basically. And because they're all oriented in the same way, um, and because they have that spiral geometry, imagine all the dipole moments of all the carbonyls in there in a spiral, they kind of add together to make one giant net dipole that uh, goes with the, the handedness of the alpha helix. So if they're all pointing in the same direction, that gives you a built-in electric field in the complex. And then if you assemble all these into a, a, a monolayer, now uh, you have a built-in electric field that's, that's confined to this 10 nanometer region of space. So this then we sandwich between two electrodes. And so now when we apply a bias in one direction, we either compress that electric field or we extend that electric field. Now, this is the key difference. In a PN junction, you're injecting charge carriers and they're moving through the device. And so this, they follow Kirchhoff's laws. And so um, in their classical, you know, uh, thermally activated hopping processes. Um, so that means that diodes, you know, they have, they operate differently, different temperatures, et cetera. Uh, they have space charge limits, all these things that come with it. In our case, and, and I'm gonna be very careful when I say this because people will disagree with me. Um, we have very strong evidence that the mechanism in these uh, devices is non-resonant tunneling. And so what that means is that rather than injecting a charge carrier and having that diffuse through a device, um, what happens is that you have an electron wave function that has non-zero probability on both electrodes at the same time. Um, and when you apply a bias on it, you're just collecting that wave function, or you're, you're, you know, you're collapsing the wave function on one side and kind of collecting the charge. Um, so the operating principle is really similar in the sense that you're, you're expanding and compressing an electric field, but the actual transport mechanism uh, microscopically is, is, is non-resonant tunneling. Um, and so basically the internal electric field is just manipulating the tunneling probability depending on which side you're trying to collect the electron off of. Um, now, that has the advantage that it's temperature independent that it, happen, it occurs over uh, 10 nanometers distance. So you can make very small diodes out of these, for example. Um, and it's the disadvantage that the rectification ratios that we get are nowhere near what you get from a commercial uh, silicon PN uh, uh, diode, right? So there's, they rectify orders of magnitude and, and you know, we do like, well, I mean, we do two orders of magnitude. They do like 
uh, um, 10 orders of magnitude or some, some huge amount like that. Um, uh, but on the other hand, I mean, I, I'll, 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 I'm rambling a little bit, so I'll cut my answer short, but I can follow up on this if people are interested. But on the other hand, there are, I think, strong arguments to be made for why you would want to build fundamental circuit elements like diodes out of either individual molecules or protein complexes uh, that could have technological relevance uh, going forward. But um, so anyway, I hope I answered your question in there. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great explanation, actually. Uh, and I think that is why you have mentioned the word in your introduction that it is uh, temperature independent. I think it's which itself is a very uh, special feature because uh, I was actually thinking of its application oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really, in really superconducting super, super um, scenarios. We're actually running out of time. Um, is it okay if we just move on with the questions at the moment? Is that okay? Yep. Um, Thank you. Sorry. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Um, I'm really sorry. Um, um, Ryan, um, I've got a question for you, please. Um, and I'm sorry this this is a really a basic, basic question, but I'm hearing like a lot of the technical stuff you're talking about and it's absolutely fascinating. Um, but what is actually meant by um, the self-assembly? I mean, in terms of, is, is, it, is it that it's they're self-creating logical circuits like by themselves or is it that they're biological and then they can reproduce like in that sense? Yeah, it's it's both. Um, so let me bracket this by saying that the term self-assembly uh, is somewhat abused. Um, so the broadest definition is anything that that, that organizes into some, you know, order, something that we can recognize as an ordered structure. Um, but if you dig into that a little bit, there are two main types of self-assembly. There's there's uh, equilibrium self-assembly, and there's out of equilibrium self-assembly. Um, out of equilibrium self-assembly are systems that maintain a low entropic state while dissipating energy. And one of the most well-known of those systems is organisms. So if I stop imbibing energy, I will fall apart, um, right? Because I am in a low entropic state and this is only maintainable because I'm dissipating energy. There's an argument to be made that I think is very interesting that the... Um, absolute thermodynamic efficiency of plants, of the actual photosystem complexes, is what it is, and it evolved to that level, because that's exactly the amount of energy that you can, um, that's exactly the amount of energy that you can extract from sunlight while maintaining, while decreasing entropy locally, so while doing carbon fixation. Um, uh, if you want to go look that up, like, you can probably put some soup of words into Google and, and, and find uh, work on that, which I think is a very interesting thing. Um, so when we talk about like protein folding, that's a form of self-assembly um, and it's, that's equilibrium self-assembly. So the, the, the system is trying to find a global minimum and that global minimum just happens to be something that we recognize as an ordered structure. So um, the protein complexes themselves are trimeric photosystem one complexes and they're very much self-assembled. Um, nature produces them for us. You know, we, we, we supply the energy um, and they crank out the photosystem, which is great. Um, the devices themselves are also self-assembled, but th this is a um, this is what we like to call program self-assembly. So what we do is we take a, a substrate, and it has you know patterned gold on it, and we dictate, uh, or, or let's say we bias the self-assembly process by patterning where we put different fullerenes on there. So if there's a region that we want a diode, we put one fullerene on. If there's a region that we want to um, 
a, a resistor, we put another type of fullerene. That process is actually pretty easy because you can you can use any kind of lithography uh, lithographic process you want to uh, mask off and define those regions. The actual installation of the fullerene complexes themselves on the surface, that's also self-assembly. So they just jump on there all by themselves and they find this thermodynamic minimum where they're very uh, densely packed on the surface. Um, so all we do is we mask off different regions and we expose them to different, you know, let's call them inks. And so you basically print where you want what to happen, the fullerene self-assemble in the region that you print them. Then you take the entire substrate and you immerse that in a solution of photosystem one, which in, in, again is itself a self-assembled trimeric protein complex. And then those tr protein complexes then self-assemble into uh, arrays on top of the fullerenes where the orientation, um, so, so let's, let's say the, the energetic minimum that they find is biased uh, by the initial patterning that we did. Um, so, um, yeah, so anyway, I, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> that does. Thank you very much for your answer. It gives me a lot to go and look up after this. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. It kind of um, makes me think that, um, you know, simpler organisms such as slime molds, when they are able to like trace um, maps more efficiently, like they, they are able to create maps <clears throat> for the US, like infrastructure maps or for cities more efficiently, uh, that would make more sense um, than, you know, how we design um, city infrastructure. I don't know if you heard about it, but it makes me think that they, we interpret, we humanize their thinking way too much. It's probably they utilize these um, self-assembly protein structures uh, for these type of, um, yeah, for this type of patterns. Yeah, I've, 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 I've heard that actually, that, that, that I, I, don't, I don't remember where, but I read about that slime mold thing. And um, I don't know exactly how slime molds uh, uh, grow, but there's a whole, I'm, I'm sure someone around here studies this actually, there's this whole very interesting um, uh, uh, process by which organisms stick to surfaces using protein surface interactions um, and uh, like microscopically that's really interesting because and, and, and also right at that interface that that's a very interesting self-assembly process whereby they have, you have these these proteins that are being expressed like you know, I don't know, the, the edges of a slime mold or um, the ones we looked at, we actually looked at the stem cells uh, will do this too. Um, and that these little proteins will go find structural features on a surface that are effectively invisible to us and they'll differentiate them. And this will then guide the growth of the whole organism behind it, right? So like what we showed is that if you make uh, gold nanowires, if you control the, the, the spacing and the orientation and the angle between them, you can change the morphology of stem cells because they will anchor differently depending on, uh, they, they sense what the proteins end up doing, uh, or with the, sorry, what the stem cells end up doing is through these specific protein interactions in a way that I don't understand. I, I was a collaborator who did the stem cell part of it. Um, they managed to communicate back to the whole cell information about the total um, uh, pattern on the surface, right? So, so we're talking about like a grid of nanowires on a surface where if you change the angle between them, all the stem cells on the surface will change their morphology based on those angles. Um, this is a process I don't understand, uh, but, but it's, 
indeed from a self-assembly uh, 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 angle, it's really interesting how you can take these microscopic surface protein interactions that at their core are just surface free energy or maybe hydrogen bonding or hydrophobic interactions or something like that and communicate it back to a whole organism to control how a slime hole moves or how a stem cell differentiates or, or anything like that. Um, and, and what, like, I guess what we're doing in this paper is exploiting those interactions, but in like a very, very simple way. Yeah, that's amazing. It's really fascinating your work. Uh, it, it sparked so many, you know, ideas in different fields, but Frank, go ahead. You had the question. Oh yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, thanks, Ryan. This is a very exciting uh, research that you're presenting us, and uh, congratulations. The this is uh, to me. I mean, seems very, very. Uh, how to say cross disciplinary has huge potentials. I mean, molecular uh, electronics and uh, uh, ingenious ways of uh, doing uh, manufacturing, say uh, self assembly and printing. The um, you. Uh, by the way, there are some similar uh, researchers that pre presented uh, uh, their research with us. Uh, for example, James, uh, Professor uh, James Tour, also I believe uh, in similar uh, field that he presented us with uh, interesting, a few interesting uh, research. For example, the producing graphene using flash. Uh, I mean, three D printing type of uh, you know uh, auto automation. Uh, they're getting a huge uh, funding for, but anyway, uh, so I, my curiosity is the uh, towards the application since the uh, you're already using um, bio and chemi chemi uh, chemical systems that are, um, there are so many, I mean, even just uh, earlier in earlier discussion in uh, with, well, with uh, in science society, we talked about uh, potential need for a voltage uh, fluorescence type of uh, uh, in vivo in situ type of uh, probe. Uh, I mean, your contribution, I mean, your work will actually uh, bring in much more sophistication, right? You, you have uh, logic gates even to process the signals. I mean, anything that uh, came up to your um, scope, I mean, in future, I mean, since uh, quantum biology or and all all these you know even in manufacturing you know uh, anything that um, uh, inside that uh, you uh, for future plans for of this uh, the application of this research so um so jim tour he is like uh, I, he in many ways started a lot of this research uh, when, when his work uh, um in, in the 1990s. So he was measuring uh, the conductance of individual molecules by STM that were embedded in these mixed monolayers. Um, so he's, he's very well known in, in uh, the, the field of uh, molecular electronics. I would say if you guys wanna have somebody on who really knows about these bioelectronic stuff, um, you can contact David Cahan at the, at the Weizmann Institute. He's an extremely nice guy. He's been around forever. I think he's actually emeritus there now. Um, and uh, I, I think you guys would absolutely love talking to him if, if you if you like this uh, this area at all. Um, so 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 Jim Tour in the '90s he was doing these uh, he was measuring these molecular wires right as I was saying these mixed model layers and um, he was putting an STM tip on them and then and then doing an ID cycle and noticing like a negative differential resistance rectification all these 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 really interesting behaviors. Um, and that kind of like single-handedly rejuvenated this idea of molecular electronics, which from an application perspective, um, this goes back to the 1940s, 
And um, in the 40s is when they were really uh, uh, taking the you know Shockley transistor and putting it into integrated circuits. And that, you know, that was the big thing of like, you know, Fairchild Semiconductor. And the Department of Defense was really interested in this stuff. And so it was like in the 1955, I wanna say, there was a presentation from, um, you know, some general or somebody who was talking about how well, you know, the transistor, this was in like the 50s, right? He says, the transistor started out as this big macroscopic thing. We've already shrunk it down to millimeter features. Pretty soon we're gonna be microns. And he just drew a line through a graph. And he said, at a certain point, this graph is going to intersect a line. And that line is where we're going to hit the feature size that we're going to have to switch to molecular circuits, molecular electronics. Um, and then uh, nothing happened. <laughs> there was a paper from a, a, a group in Germany where they measured some tunneling current through some fatty acids. And then in like, I think it was 1974, um, Averman Ratner published the, the seminal paper on molecular diodes. And this was a theoretical paper that said, Basically, if you take TTF and TCNQ, which was a, there's a very important charge transfer salt at the time, and you separate them with an aliphatic bridge, um, they, it should rectify current in a, in a single molecule junction. Um, and then again, nothing really happened until Tour did, did his work in the 90s that kind of, uh, I, I say like kind of restarted the field, I guess, or, or, or got it going, however you want to look at it. So the field of molecular electronics kind of is still guided by that original idea that if you keep shrinking feature sizes down, eventually you're gonna hit the point where if you wanna make uh, electronic devices any smaller, you're either gonna to have to go the Drexler route of building things with individual atoms, which we do not know how to do, or you're going to have to exploit molecular self-assembly to make circuits out of individual molecules. Um, and and I, I think that that's kind of right as, as a motivation for a potential application. Um, the, the issue there is that if you wanna make a, a if you want to make a, 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 um, a transistor, you have to add a third electrode. And adding a third electrode in something that's already the size of a molecule is just, that's just very challenging. So I think that diode logic is an interesting way to go. Um, I think also that there's a lot of potential for memory. Um, so if, if, for example, we could swap out the photosystem one for a protein that um, maybe had some kind of a, a, a metalloenzyme or something that had a metal that was buried deep inside it, maybe we could put a charge on that metal and then we could alter the conductance state so that we could read out where we put that charge. We've done stuff with molecular switches where we could do this by, uh, with light, for example. We could switch molecular switches into different conformations for light and differentiate conductivity. Um, a colleague of mine uh, in the University of Twente named uh, Chris Nyhouse, who you also might wanna to talk to, he's, he's very interesting. Um, they have a device where they can get these giant hysteresis uh, uh, out of um, molecular junctions. And hysteresis is kind of the, the, the baseline thing that you want for a neuromorphic circuit element. Um, so this is something that exhibits uh, uh, spike time dependent plasticity. So, um, uh, you know, where if two signals come, they have to come at the right time and they can either modulate the conductance up or down. Uh, depending on, on on whether they're you know inhibitory or excitatory and when they occurred and etc. Um, so like that's an interesting area for application. Um, so what I would say is that what I what what I'm interested in is molecular electronics that can extend the function of existing silicon electronics. So you alluded to maybe um, devices that uh, uh, you know that um, that maybe could work in a biological context, for example. Right, so if you're making something out of proteins, maybe maybe that's that's the way to go. Um, I guess the next thing that I'm interested in doing here is taking the platform that we have 
and trying to miniaturize it. So I have some colleagues here where uh, at NC State, where we're, we're gonna try to see if we can print the metal features smaller and make more complex circuits just as a, as a proof of concept. That's getting back to that original idea of molecular electronics just shrinking feature sizes down. Um, the other thing that I would like to pursue is indeed finding other proteins that we can put in there. Because I mean, in principle, we just swap it out for any other protein that has some heretofore undiscovered functionality. It could be like I said, memory or hysteresis, or um, in our case, rectification, maybe some kind of switching. Um, I think that, that would be really, really interesting. Um, just as an aside, one of the neat things about molecular electronic junctions is that everything you do to them causes order of magnitude changes. And one of the neat things about Photosystem 1 that we've shown in other papers is that you can incorporate these junctions into microfluidic devices. And so now you have the possibility of having a protein in a tunneling junction that's exposed to a solution. So you could imagine trying to build like a sensing platform or something out of this that works directly by, by directly probing the change in the tunneling probability across a protein when it has a ligand bound to it or when it does not. I mean, um, uh, I don't know that we'll go in that direction because sensing is a very crowded and unforgiving field. Uh, but that's like a potential area that, that this could go in. Um, I see that we're after 10 o'clock, so I'm, I'm gonna shut up. Um, but uh, let me just, yeah, just, summar, just, just to summarize, I think that the two general areas you can go in here are either to go in that feature shrinking, so the original kind of 1950s idea of molecular electronics. The other area you can go is to try to exploit molecular electronics for unique functionality that you can't get out of conventional semiconductors. And that can be things like molecular recognition, exploiting the self-assembly, um, also mechanical deformation, uh, you know, if you have proteins that, that can change conformation in, in response to stimuli, that kind of stuff, um, then you can you can incorporate these into conventional electronics that just measure changes in conductance that um, that then extend existing silicon electronics, uh, the functionality into areas, uh, you know, um, where, where the tip of the spear, if you will, can be a little molecular electronic junction. Thank, thank you for the thorough answer. I'll give the mic to Katarina. I think the time is up. Well, thank you so much um, for your time. Um, I'm sorry, Ryan and I, we both have a hard stop at 10. So um, uh, thank you so much for coming here, Ryan, and answering all the questions. Maybe you come back one day or um, maybe one of your lab members would like to come back and, and um, talk with us some more about um, projects you have and, and research updates and maybe by the end of the year. So that would be amazing. And uh, we really appreciate you making, you know, the Clubhouse account and coming here, uh, go through the trouble <laughs> to speak with us. And uh, we wish you all the funding and all the best. It's amazing work. It's um, really so interesting and congratulations for doing this. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the kind words. Oh, yep. Thanks. Thank thanks. So Thank you for the invitation. This was really fun. I've never done anything quite like this before. Um, and um, I, I, would, I would be happy to come back or, or to uh, uh, indeed send, send, you know, one of my students uh, along if you want to in the future. Great. Both. <laughs> <laughs> yes, both. <laughs> and yeah, good luck with your house. I hope everything goes well. And, uh... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you everyone for coming. Follow the club if you like discussion like this. And um, yeah, thank you, Ryan. And um, All right. bye.
Bye bye. Thank you, Thank you everyone. Bye bye. Okay, bye. Thank Hope you for. And three, two, one. Bye, everyone. <laughs> bye.